All right, ladies, welcome. Uh, we're learning Tehillim. <clears throat> we started a, uh, a monumental chapter, chapter 92. It's the chapter that we read on Shabbat, Mizmor Shiliyom Shabbat. In last week's session, we discussed the first Pasuk and its relationship to the Shabbat itself. And we learned how Moshe Rabbeinu was related to the Shabbat, to the Rabbah. And we actually said, Mizmor Shiliyom Shabbat is Rashet Tevot le Moshe, which hints to us uh, entering the Shabbat HaMoshe Rabbeinu, uh, returns to us the lights that we lost, and also lifts up the weak souls that are now able or are unable to receive the Kedushah Shabbat. Moshe Rabbeinu helps them, Erev Shabbat, to receive it. And this is the song that the Levim sang in the Beit HaMikdash on Shabbat itself. We had different opinions who wrote the chapter. Anybody from Moshe Rabbeinu to David to Adam Arishon. All, uh, all uh, we found connections uh, between them. Uh, today, I want to analyze Pesukim, Daf, Pasuk Vav, and on. Magadilu ma'asecha Hashem. Me'od ameku machshebotecha. It's Pasuk Vav. Magadilu ma'asecha Hashem. Whenever you see the word gadol. Gadol, when we were young, they taught us in school, means big. But that's an elementary explanation. I want to go back to the Amidah for a minute. In the Amidah, we say that God is Ha'el HaGadol, HaGibor, VeHanorah. So the rabbis tell us Gadol, Gibor, VeNorah are three praises of Hashem. Keneged Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. So Gadol would be Keneged Avraham, Gibor would be Keneged Yitzhak, and Norah would be Keneged Yaakov. So what is Gadol? That represents God's nature of being kind. Gadol is Chesed. The kindness of Hashem, the bountifulness of Hashem. If you pray in the morning, we say, Vaybarich David, over there we say, Lecha Adonai Hagidula Vahagibura. Gidula is the opposite of Gibura. Gibura is judgment. Gibura is deen. Gibor is deen. And Gidula is kindness. So, another way in the holy books to say Hesed would be Gadol. So, in this Pasuk, we're saying, Magadilu Ma'asecha Hashem. Whenever you see the, the name Yudke Vavke, that's Hashem's name, Yudke Vavke, it's the name of mercy as well. Hashem has many names. Every name connotes a different mood or a different approach. Yudke Vavke is the name of God, which is the most merciful and kindest uh, of the names that represent Midat uh, Hamim. So in this Pasuk, David Melech is saying, Magadelu, God, you're Gadol. You have Chesed. Your actions are motivated ultimately by Yudke Vavke, by something that is good. However, it should be pointed out, while David HaMelech has uh, unwavering faith that everything is being uh, guided by God's Gidula and by the name Yudke Vavke, <clears throat> however, it doesn't always seem that way. That's not always apparent. And therefore, he says at the end of the Pasuk, Me'od Ameku, 
your uh, thoughts and ideas are very deep. So deep that we cannot understand them. So at one point, David Melech is making a, uh, uh, a definitive statement. I recognize that everything you do is for the best. And everything you do is good. And and everything is being motivated from Yudke Vavke. And it's Gadol. But it doesn't always seem that way. And therefore we're forced to say as humans that your thought process is very deep and we can't understand what you're doing. So there's, there's two statements that are not contradictory. Uh, a child um, assumes that whatever his mother's doing is merciful, but doesn't always understand what the mother is doing. The mother is more mature, and therefore uh, when the child sees the mother take uh, him for his shots, for his inoculation, and the mother brings the baby there, and the, 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 the baby intuitively knows, my mother doesn't want to hurt me. And then all of a sudden, the doctor has a big injection, and the child is expecting the mother to defend himself from that big injection, from that big needle. And instead, the mother, instead of becoming a defender, becomes an accomplice with the doctor and uh, holds down the baby as the doctor is injecting. And then instead of the mother slapping the doctor across the face, says to the doctor, thank you very much, and smiles and gives him some money. Now go explain to a child what just happened. Uh, he doesn't know what inoculation means. He doesn't know that the mother just saved him from rubella and the mumps and whooping cough and, you know, 10 other, you know, serious diseases. Uh, he just thinks that I know my mother's mercy, but I don't know what she just did to me over here. Uh, when she gets a, little, gets a little older, the mother can explain that day that you thought I was hurting you. Actually, you, you were right. I was being mercy. So it's the same thing with God. Uh, a lot of times... Uh, we, Emunah tells us it's got to be merciful. It has to be right. It has to be proper. But far be it from us to explain how it is. Uh, you're not supposed to understand God. Uh, people struggle uh, to understand uh, 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 humans that are smarter than us. Uh, people have a hard time reading an article in the New York Times. They don't understand what it means. And that's written by humans. So how then do you expect to understand God, who is the, the deepest of all? His ways are not to be understood. That's a mistake that people make. So I don't understand God. One big rabbi said, you'd rather a God that you understand, then you have minimized him to your intellect. Don't you want your God to be above you, where he does things that are above your understanding? If you understand God in everything that he does, and he's predictable, and he's easily figured out, so then you've made God very small. Uh, it's difficult for the, for the creation to understand the creator. Um, it, should be, it should be pointed out um, the, the depth of how, how, how beyond God is. There's a, there's, a, um, there's a saying in America, when somebody creates something, uh, they call it uh, a brainchild. Brainchild, this is his brainchild. What does that mean? It's the child of his brain. When you invent something, that means the brain thought of it, 
And uh, there was somebody that had an idea once uh, to create a cup. This is an invention of some. There was no cups in the six days of creation. It didn't make cups. Somebody had an idea and said, well, instead of drinking water with our hands and slapping it into our mouths, maybe we can create a receptacle somehow and we'll create it like this and we'll add it and then it became uh, a bestseller. Everything that you see in this world is the uh, a child of somebody's brain. You could point to anything in this room, to this desk, uh, to this uh, uh, necktie, um, and to this button. Somebody figured out uh, it's uh, stylish to put a button uh, and, uh, and, you know, for, for this, and, and, and the watch, and even this, uh, I guess, the splendor, which we could do without. But the point is, everything is a creation, everything. So the brain is very powerful. The brain is so, uh, 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 has so much ingenuity that if you use it, it can create everything. It creates so many things. All the technology that you're seeing today, people thought about this and figured out how to build the Verrazano Bridge. Who thought you could build the bridge over water? But again, they, they, they figured it out. And nothing that you're going to point to in the world besides the natural stuff, everything is really a child of somebody's brain. So then you have to ask yourself, the million-dollar question. This brain that we're talking about that is so bright, whose brainchild is the brain? <laughs> who, who invented the brain? Now you'll have the uh, atheist will come along and say, oh, no, that's just evolution. That just happened by itself. Now, how is it possible that the brain, nothing else happened by itself from the brain then? From the brain on, nothing happened by itself. But the brain happened by itself. The brain that's so capable, how did that just happen out of poof, out of thin air? But then everything subsequent, once the brain is there, can only be based on somebody's doing. If the brain is so clever, that means somebody has to be more clever and more bright and more smart to create this machine that's so smart to create everything after it. And that's what we say, Mo'od amikum as smart as we are, we're only the recipient of the brain that you gave us, but you are the one that invented the, the, the process from the beginning. And how, how far beyond is, is God? And that's a, that's a, that's a uh, 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 basically, David Melech is, is um, uh, he's giving up. He's conceding. It's a concession over here by saying, I don't understand everything. David was the, one of the wisest of all men. He's a man that was a prophet as well. And even he uh, concedes that your ways are very deep. And it's hard for us to, to calculate. I'll show you just an example of even in law, even in simple Jewish law, we cannot understand how deep Hashem's thinking is. Jewish law, if somebody comes along and steals a sheep, we don't find that too often. Uh, nobody ever stole a sheep from me, Baruch Hashem. I got my bicycle stolen, but not my sheep. But in the olden days, they had sheep. And he slaughters it. So he's a thief. How much does he have to pay? He has to pay back uh, four times. The Torah penalizes him four times. Four sheep he has to pay back. It's a law. And if he steals an ox, 
just to me the same thing, uh, and he slaughters it, he has to pay back five times. Now that's deep, because I don't see the difference between stealing a sheep and an ox, why one has to pay back four times, and one has to pay back five, but God made this law. And if God makes this law, there has to be omic, there has to be depth behind why. In secular law, don't try to figure out the depth. There's no depth behind secular law. It's just punitive, and it really doesn't have a, a logic. With it. A lot of it is unfair even. Why should this person get punished so severely and this one get off? There's no justice in a lot of the laws. But Torah law is so perfect, it is omic, there's depth. What's the depth? Well, hold on to your seats. You're not going to like it at first, but the because she never stole the sheep, but it's it's much more um, embarrassing to steal a sheep than it is to steal an ox. For the simple reason, an ox you can hold the what are they having color war? Here, what, 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 what are they doing? Happy. Oh, I'm glad that they're happy. Okay, okay, as long as they're happy, uh, can they be happy somewhere else? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so, so what happens is, what happens is that when you steal an ox, it's kind of easy because you just take the leash and you walk it through the public domain, which is common. But a sheep, to steal it, you have to actually lift it up and carry it. And you ever see somebody carrying a sheep in the public domain? It's humiliating to do such a thing. And the Torah says because the ganav humiliated himself, we're letting him pay less uh, 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 damages. He only has to pay back four because of the humiliation. Now, can I ask you a question? Who asked him to get humiliated? He did it to himself. So since when are we interested in giving a ganav a discount for humiliation? <laughs> why, does he, why does he deserve a discount for that? Don't steal the sheep and therefore pay full price or pay 10 times the amount. Why are we taking the Ganav's feelings into consideration over here? He's a bad guy. It's a federal crime. You're a crook. And therefore, I'm a, I'm a merciful person. But I, I have my mercy on people that are worthy of mercy. But why does the Ganav deserve some sort of uh, friends and family discount because he suffered some uh, uh, emotional uh, embarrassment that he caused to himself? It's not like somebody embarrassed him. You picked up the sheep yourself and walked the sheep to the beam, so you don't care about your own, your own self-worth. Uh, Why should I? That's the depth of the Torah. Listen to the depth of the... Human, a secular court, will never think like this. But God does. Why? Because God says like this. What's the reason, maybe, why a person comes to steal? Because he has a low self-esteem and he has a low feeling on himself and his worth in his eyes is very low and maybe people don't respect him and therefore he fell into bad company and therefore he fell into bad society. and therefore. He, so the Torah says when we punish uh, a criminal, for sure we must take into consideration the, uh, the victim and the victim needs to be compensated but we're deep in our punishments that we also take into consideration the perpetrator in order to figure out maybe there's a way to rehabilitate him at the same time that we're compensating the victim. Meaning to say, when the 
the perpetrator is told by the judge, well, listen, you know, it's embarrassing what you did, and we feel bad that you had to do that. And he says, somebody feels bad for me? Somebody's taking my feelings into consideration? All my life I've been told that I'm a bum, and I'm a good for nothing, and I'm a zero, and I'm a low life. And in the court that's punishing me, you're saying... Well, listen, we feel bad that you had to go through that little shame and embarrassment, and therefore we're giving you a little uh, uh, a discount on the... Pe- and that already gives the person a, uh, a certain new awareness that although maybe in my friend's eyes I'm not so important, but in the court's eyes, I'm something. And therefore they deal with me, and they don't think I'm just a piece of dirt, that my feelings don't count. That's depth of Torah. Now, it doesn't mean, like the liberals will say, that it's all about the perpetrator and he has all the rights and forget about the victim. That's in New York, they say that. The perpetrator could do anything. You want to break the windows on Fifth Avenue? And uh, say he has all the rights. And the poor guy who's uh, trying to make a living, that, um, hey, you have to let him do that. If you defend yourself, we're going to throw you in jail. You have to let him throw a, a rock through your, through, 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 through your, through your, your storefront. Okay, that's, that's America. That, but that's Hokimu Mishpatim by Yidaum. The laws make no sense. You see, so even the laws of the Torah, at first glance, when you study them, you say, I don't understand what Hashem is trying to accomplish. But then you see that Bore Olam has uh, much. Similarly, the Torah says if somebody commits a crime, how many lashes is he supposed to get if he commits a crime? We're not talking about over your mother taking a belt and beating you up. That's a different type of lashes. That's up to your mother. This is the court. The court is, 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 is given permission to give what's called malkut to certain people that commit certain crimes under certain circumstances. So the Torah says, Arba'im yakenu. Arba'im is how much? Great. And by the way, when I read the word Arba'im also in the Torah, it sounded like 40 to me, just like it sounded like 40 to you. Arba'im, let's be honest, sounds like 40. But the Gemara says, it's not 40. It's 39. And we have a big dilemma now. How does 40 in Gebarah's language turn into 39? So some of the rabbis say it means uh, the number that leads to 40, which is 39. But I don't know. The more I say the word Arba'im, the more it sounds like 40 to me. And I don't know how the Gebarah can come along and say 40 lashes really means 39 lashes. How How do we square that? But because the Gemara understood this pasuk, that God's punishments are deep, and God's thought process is deep, so they understand when they see the word 40, 40 can mean 39 in the following deep understanding. And this is the way we have to break down every Jewish law. What's the depth behind the law? Because it's coming from God. And there has to be some sort of, you know, a, a, a depth to it. So I'm, what I'm telling you now is from a rabbi called Maharal. What I'm doing just now is showing you examples of the depth of God's wisdom. That at first glance you say, it makes no sense. And then after you start to analyze, you say, wow, I wouldn't, I, wouldn't have, uh, I wouldn't have thought that. So here's the case. The Gemara says that a human being, it takes 40 days from conception for the uh, child to be complete in the mother's womb. That's why there's a halakha that says that you're allowed to pray for the gender of the child up until 40 days. But after 40 days already, it's said, well, today you can pray till the kid's 100 years old for the gender. But I'm not, <laughs> I'm not talking about today. Today the people went crazy. 
But in the olden days, when things were still normal, 40 days is the cutoff point. That's it. The boy's a boy at 40, and the girl's a girl uh, at 40. But, you know, today it's, uh, it's all up in the air. Anyway, <clears throat> I don't want to go into that subject. So the, 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 the Gemara says that what happens at day 40? The Gemara says in the first 39 days, the body is formed. And on day 40, the neshama is put into the, soul, into the child. So therefore, at day 40, you have now a combination of body and soul. The first 39 days was body. On day 40, the soul is put in, and that's like the, the finishing touches. And now the baby just has to grow and grow until it becomes, uh, you know, mature. Now, when a person sins, it's without a doubt he sins with his whole, his whole, his whole self, which is actually all 40 parts. He sins with the body which was created in 39 days and the soul is there. Now we'll all agree that even though the soul is part of the sin, the soul really is not uh, the, the, uh, the cause of the sin. It's the body that is driven to sin and brings the soul in as a, you know, as, as a helper. But the sin is never motivated from the, from the soul itself. It's the body that, that does it. If I can give you the mashal, uh, in school, when we see kids get into mischief, behavior, so we know that there's certain kids that are good, and they just get dragged in, that they're not really behind the, the trouble. We can usually pinpoint who the instigators are. But we got to punish everybody because uh, they're part of it. But we know they're not the ones that instigate it. So Maharal says something incredible. If we look at the entirety of the sin it's 40. It's the whole person. But when we want to come to punish, who are you going to punish? Which part of the person are you going to punish? You're going to punish the body. Because it's the body that influenced the soul. And therefore, although it's 40, but it's really 39. That means the Malkut are going to be given to the 39 parts. And once we get the body straightened out already, there's really no need to straighten the soul out. The soul is, 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 is inherently good. And therefore, it's 40, which is 39. Wow, what a, what, a, what, a deep, what a deep Torah we have over here. Who would have thought? And when you start to think of other punishments that the Torah gives, you see this omic uh, behind. It's not just random. And I would like to give another example. Uh, for this, the average age doesn't have to be 40, but the average age has to be 18, just to understand these, mashal, this story that I'm going to give you now. And it's going to sound shocking at first, but... This is the Torah law. The Torah punishes for adultery. There is uh, death penalties for the sin of adultery. Uh, in the Torah, it's one of the Ten Commandments. However, the punishment... Now, please, don't attack me until I finish, because it's going to sound strange. That's why I'm giving you this example. And don't fall out of your seats either. The Torah says that uh, adultery uh, with a married lady, the punishment is death, but it's less severe punishment than if she's just merely engaged. Engaged means he gave her a ring and said, but she didn't get married. So if she's fully married, the punishment is less severe than if she is engaged where the punishment is more severe. Now, can you explain that? Uh, it sounds strange to me. 
I would say, fully married lady, that is more adulterous than if she's just the stage one, Kiddushin. That is less adulterous. So why is the punishment more in seemingly the less adulterous case than the more? Well, Torah says it. And God is just. But you have to recognize, his thought process is deep. And it's not superficial. And many things that we wouldn't take into calculation, he takes into calculation. The same God that takes the calculation of the perpetrator who stole the sheep. So he's going to take into calculation some other things as well. You would all agree, when a person sins, some people sin uh, with uh, no regard and no fear whatsoever, no guilt or no compunction. And there's others that might sin and they, at the time of sin, feel a little apprehension or a little nervousness or a little uh, uh, um, uh, uh, fear to some, to some degree. Well, God will calculate that uh, into the punishment. That somebody that does a sin in a carefree manner without any uh, uh, concern is going to be punished more than somebody that does it with a little guilt and reservation. Now he said, what does that got to do with our case? It has everything to do with it. When a, an adulterous situation takes place uh, with a married lady, the Torah recognizes that the perpetrator, although he's com- committing a crime, a crime that we will kill him for, by the way, so we're not letting him off, by the way, but it's going to be a lesser death, easier death than the other one. Why? Because, or it'll be a, uh, 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 because he's afraid. He's always worried that the husband might walk in and catch him. So although he's committing the avon, but he's doing it without a full heart, his mind is also concerned that, hey, I might get caught. Now, I would have said, I don't care what you think. I'm not a liberal over here that cares about your, your thoughts that the perpetrator has rights. You lost all your rights once already you committed adultery. But Torah says, no, the sin was done 75% uh, uh, with his heart, and the other 25% he has fear. Well, that punishment is going to be mitigated. But if a lady is just engaged, he says to himself, she's not married, she's only engaged. Let him walk in, what do I care? They're not really... So therefore he does the avon with more, more gusto and less apprehension. Oh, you're doing the sin more wholeheartedly? The punishment is greater. I'm sorry. The Shema never drives a person to sin. It's, it's always the body. The, only the body. And, 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 although the Neshama is there, so the Neshama always gets drawn into the body's you know, shenanigans. But the Neshama never draws a person to Avon. The Neshama only will draw a person to the right things. It's that, that's the, that's the battle. We always have the battle between body and soul. Body wants to bring every, you to this way, and the soul wants to bring you that way. And the, the, the struggle of life is to try to let the neshama influence the body before the body influences the soul. This is the struggle that we're talking about. But isn't it the nefesh behemit that makes it, like what? makes the person sin? That's the animal level of the... Which is, called, which is called the body. It's called the body? I'm not so sophisticated, nefesh behemit, in these terms. I like to call it what it is, the body, the goof. No, because there is some sort of energy that is like a soul. That's, what, that's why she's asking, isn't it the neshama that's... So the brain is not the body, no? The brain is part, the brain is the body. 
Exactly. Soul is the conscious. Soul is the conscious. That's the spiritual part of you. I can't tell you exactly where it is. Maybe it's in your brain. Maybe it's in your heart. It's somewhere floating around. The body, you know exactly where it is. The body is just... My point over here in this last example is that who would have thought that you have two adulterers and God's mitigating the punishment of one because he does it with a little fear and a little nervousness and that already causes the punishment to be less. I'm giving you these examples only to say that when it comes now to the things that happen in life, to us, to, to people that you don't understand, you have to just come to the recognition that there's depth over here. And once there's depth, uh, I don't understand depth. I only understand one plus one equals two. And when it equals three, uh, that's beyond my comprehension. You need a bigger professor to explain how that came out. And God obviously has uh, an understanding. And go to the next person. You know what a ba'ad is? A ba'ad is a, an imbecile. The imbecile, he doesn't know. Okay. Uxil, the fool, he doesn't understand this. Well, what does the ba'ad not understand? And what does the ksil not know? Next pasuk. When they see the wicked people prospering, like grass. And all the evildoers are blossoming. They don't understand. How is that possible? How is it possible that the wicked prosper? And if I could say the other side of the coin, and why do the righteous suffer? This is an old age, age old question, by the way. You see people that are so religious and so pious and keep mitzvot and do everything right to the letter of the law. And uh, they don't have such an easy existence. Uh, they have a difficult life. And we look at that as an injustice. How could it be? And then we look at the other side, where the people that are not fulfilling anything in religious life, they're the Sha'im. They're in contempt of every Jewish law. And they're flourishing, and they have a life of Riley, and they live comfortably, and everything is fine. And you say to yourself, well, this makes no sense. There's no equity over here. The guy that should be getting all the reward is getting clobbered, and the one that should be getting clobbered is getting all the reward. And David Amelik says, the fool and the imbecile doesn't understand when he sees this. And I ask you a simple question. Only the fool doesn't understand this? What about the hakam? He also doesn't understand it. Why is David Amelik saying, oh, the imbecile doesn't understand As if this is dependent on his low IQ. Because he has such a low IQ, because he's an imbecile and a fool, he doesn't understand it. Guess what? Moshe Rabbeinu, who had a very high IQ, also didn't understand it. He once came to God and said, "Why is there sadik veratlo verasha vetovlo?" He asked God that question. Why did the righteous suffer? Now nobody's going to call Moshe a fool and an imbecile. So my question, whenever I read this on Shabbat, I always want to know, <clears throat> David. Before you start picking on the, uh, uh, the imbecile and the fool, did you understand it? David himself does not understand it. He himself admitted in the last pasuk, your ways are too deep. So therefore, if you don't understand it, and Moshe doesn't understand it, and those are the biggest prophets that we have, so if I was writing this chapter, I would say, even I don't understand it, and even my predecessor Moses 
doesn't understand it, and therefore Rabotai just have imuna. But instead, David Melech says, only the low intelligent people can't figure this out. That implies to me that there were highly intelligent people that did figure it out. And I'm telling you today, they didn't either. So what is the Ba'ar and what is the Ksil doing over here? This is not something that is only a, 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 a blind spot to limited intelligent people. This is a blind spot for everybody. So I'd like to say a big Hadush in your honor. <clears throat> it's based on what we're going to read in the Haggadah Shil Pesach. In, uh, in a few, few weeks, um, now six weeks actually from today. Yeah, that's crazy in itself. Uh, we talk about the four kids, the four sons, the Hakam. And the Hakam is brilliant because he comes to his father and says, Daddy, ma'edut ba'okim mishpatim. What is all this? Uh, he points to the edut and the okim mishpatim. He wants to understand the whole, the whole gamut of the seder. He's a Hakam. He expresses himself beautifully. And then you have the Rasha. The Rasha comes to the Sid and he just wants to get out. He's not interested in anything. He wants, he wants, he wants to go to the movies. He do not want to be there in the first place. So he's sarcastic. He tells his father, Ma'avodazot, what is this business over here? And I, want to go, I, want to go to the, I want to go to the party. And then you have the She'enu Yodei Al-Sha'al, the fourth son, who he really can't express himself so well. He's a special child. He can't even really talk, so how's he? And then the third child catches my attention. He's called the Tam. The Tam is the... The simple child, he's Tam. And why is he a Tam? Because he tells his father, uh, Mazot. Mazot means, what is this? Now, I thought that's, I think that's a good question. He comes to the Seder, and he might not be as um, expressive as the Hakam, but he's asking a question. He's not cynical, he's not sarcastic. He's saying to his father, Daddy, what is this? Is that the way teachers are supposed to respond to children that ask, what is this? Ah, you tam. You simpleton. Why am I a simpleton? My brother, who also asked, ma'edut, ma'hukim, ma'mishpatim, he already got valedictorian. And me, because I ask a question, mazot, already you put me in the, the D class. You call me a tam. What was wrong with that question? Is there anything wrong with asking a question? What is wrong with the Tam's question, Mazot? <laughs> I'll tell you what's the right matter with it. What's the matter with, with that question is, it's a foolish question. I'll tell you why. Somebody once went to NASA, it's a space agency in Houston, and he got a two and a half hour tour of all the uh, uh, manufacturing uh, plant of the space shuttle. And they take him into a room, and they say, in this room, there's 500,000 components that are put together uh, the space shuttle, from the biggest panels to the smallest uh, screws and the different uh, uh, things in between. And he's looking at this room over here, and it's amazing. And they take him up and down the aisles of all the different parts and the different pieces, etc. And uh, finally, at the end of the tour, uh, they ask him, you have any, any questions uh, on what you saw here today, he says, I do. And he goes and he picks up a little screw on the floor and he says, uh, Mazot. And the guy says, That's your question? The, everything else besides this screw, you understood? That's a silly question. 
that implies that you understand everything else. The only thing that's outstanding in your brain is, hmm, I just don't know what, what this screw has to do with the space shuttle. But the other 499,000 parts you figured out. So therefore, either say, I don't understand anything, and that's a good statement, or say, uh, um, what's this, what's this, what's this, what's this? Okay, that's that, that, which, which is, by the way, the Hakam's question that the said did, at least he says, listen, I don't understand anything if I'm asking. So he goes through the whole, uh, the whole table. But the Tam comes to the table, and there's so many things going on, and he picks up the Haroset, like one item. Mazot. Oh, that's the only thing you don't understand? From Kadesh until Nirzah, there's only So the way he expresses his question, he implies that everything else he understands, it's just that he doesn't understand Zot. Zot is singling out one item. Now let's go back. David Melech recognized that everything in this world is deep. By saying that, he is basically admitting, I understand nothing. Now, part of the nothing that I don't understand is, why do the righteous suffer? Why do the tzaddikim, uh, why do the righteous suffer? Why do the, uh, 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 why do the wicked prosper? By the way, that's only two things, but guess what? I don't understand uh, how the sun rises and is never late. Uh, it comes every morning perfectly on time. Who's managing that? I don't understand how, uh, 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 who controls the fish in the sea that they're able to, to live. My point is that many years ago, I wanted to get a, a, a fish tank. And uh, they said, you know, get the saltwater fish tank. I had a spot in the house where there was somebody who used to live in the house had a TV there, but obviously I can't put a TV. So I said, I put a fish tank in that spot. It's okay. It's better than a TV. So... I told the guy in Avenue, come, I want salt water, and I want fish. He said, oh, this is a difficult thing. What's so difficult? It's 50 gallons, and put me seven fish, and you got to feed it, and you got to put a filter. I'll do it. P.S., in one week, we had 10 levayot, 10 funerals. <laughs> in one week. Every day I came up, there's another fish floating on the top over there, and I felt guilty. I'm, I'm killing, I'm doing something wrong. I'm killing these fish. So I said, give me more. But then it, was, it wasn't right for the fish, because I, I was I had to take care of it. I said to myself, I cannot manage... 50 gallons of water. And Hashem has 50 zillion gallons with 8 billion species. And by the way, go into the water. People are throwing beer into the water and uh, all junk and the fish are living. And my thing, I was being so careful with it. I was filtering it and uh, singing to it and feeding it. No one ever had to do And they were dying left and right. And you say to yourself, how does Hashem do it? And sometimes it's the weather changes every day, sometimes it's cold, sometimes it's not, and the fish are living under the water, no problem. And who's tending to it? Who's filtering the water? There's no filter in there with the bubbles coming up every day. There's no, Hashem doesn't come with the fish food, fish feeding the fish every day like this, putting it on the top of the water, but somehow they're getting food, they're eating, it works. It's incredible. That you understand? You understand that your body is 98.6%. Normal temperature, who's keeping that? You have a thermostat in your body? The hardest thing when you're building your house is to keep the temperature the right way. This room is too hot, this room is too cold, there's a draft. Nobody has a draft in their body, 98.6. You don't get a bill at the end of the month. Who's keeping it 98.6? The Eskimo, go to the North Pole, take his temperature. It's four below zero, 98.6. Go to Hawaii, 300 degrees, take his temperature, 98.6. How? I was about, we can't keep... The, this room, we have a hard time keeping 68 degrees temperature. It's a struggle. Uh, so, but Hashem does it uh, effortlessly. 
if you take a potato and you put it in boiling water, it'll take you a half hour to, 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 to soften it up so it become, uh, you can make, uh, you can cut it up into it. But then you swallow it and the stomach somehow is able to do the same thing, pulverize it and turn it into, in, 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 into a liquid. How strong is the stomach? So then the question is, so then why doesn't the stomach eat itself? No, the stomach only devours foreign subjects, but it knows that its own lining of the... There's so many things that go on in the human body that we don't understand. So to come along and say, I don't understand anything, okay, that's a, that's a fair statement. There's a lot of things you don't understand in this world. But to come along and say, why do the righteous suffer? Oh, that's your only question? That, that, once I answer you that, then everything else in the world... So David Amelik says, look at the Pasuk now. Ishba'al, lo yada. Uqsid lo yavin etzot. That's the problem with the guy. He's a tam, he says, mazot. He singles out only this dilemma. Now we're not saying it's not a dilemma. But to come along and say, this is the only thing I don't understand... That implies that everything else of God's deep creation, you have figured out. And therefore, David Amalek says, that's foolish way of thinking. And that's a, a Baal. And that's a Kisil. Not that he doesn't know it. Nobody knows the answer to this question. But to come along and say, this I don't understand. Well, this implies you understand much more and you really don't understand anything. So it's the Zot that makes the guy a Baal and a Kisil. Now, I will say that there were many people when they survived the Holocaust and they saw this in front of their own eyes. They saw the righteous suffer and they saw the, uh, the tzaddik suffer and they saw the wicked prosper. The Nazis were wicked and they prospered and they had domination over the tzaddik and they saw it with their own eyes. There were those that survived and came to the conclusion that there cannot be a God in the world that's managing this. So therefore, there must be just total randomness and the world is just subject to coincidences and uh, there's no Hashem. God forbid, that was their conclusion. They have, they were faced with a very big dilemma. I don't judge the people that were faced with this dilemma in their conclusion, but it's the wrong conclusion, obviously. As difficult as it is to, to bear it and witness it and live through it, how is it possible that the Rosh Hashiva who was learning Torah all day long, the tzaddik, becomes victimized by the Nazi the brute who's Rashat Mirush? It doesn't make any sense. And they saw this six million times over. And therefore it stripped them from Imuna. It was easier for them to believe that randomness and everything is just a roll of the dice and there's really no reward or punishment as you see here, the bad guy that should have got punished got rewarded, and the good guy that should have got rewarded got punished. So therefore, it's just a roll of the dice, and uh, uh, everything is, is coincidental. Well, obviously that cannot be. I once saw a lady, I was, when I was in Miami giving a derash, and uh, she, she came after the speech, she hobbled over to the pulpit, she was an older lady, and she said, the rabbi, uh, could the rabbi give me a blessing? I cannot refuse an old lady. But I noticed on her arm she had the, 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 the numbers. I remember when I was in Mag and David in elementary school, I had two teachers, Adina and Esther. They had it. We were kids. We didn't know what it was. 
We would look at these old ladies, Shkenaz women, they had numbers on the arm. We thought it was so strange. We didn't even have the knowledge to ask, what are these numbers? It was so odd. That why would somebody put numbers on their arm? What is, what is she doing? What is she? What is she it's, it, it was beyond us. So beyond that we didn't even know to ask. Only when we got older, we realized that these were people that were part of this the process. So when I saw this lady had the numbers, I said, I have no problem. You're a survivor. She's a very religious woman. You saw all this? You saw all that we're talking about over here? And you're still religious? You didn't abandon God? I'll bless you, but you'll bless me as well. He said, you have a deal. And after we exchanged blessings, I, of course, I got the better end of that deal. And uh, then uh, I asked her, can you explain to me what strategy you used to survive this religiously? And she said, when the Nazis are putting these numbers in your arm, besides it's degrading, because that's what they do to cattle, and it's you know debasing and humiliating, and it just uh, it takes away your whole self-esteem, which you are. I'm no different than a cow, but it also is painful. It hurts. They're branding your arm. They burn it into your arm. He says it's a very, very, she said it was a very bad feeling. And as they were doing it, I turned to God and said, I thank you, God, because it could have been worse. I could have been the one that's doing the branding. Thank God in this equation, I'm the victim and I'm not the perpetrator. I was grateful that I could have been the Nazi that's doing the branding. Look how lucky I am. I'm the human in this equation. I'm the victim. It could have been, how could it be worse in that situation? It could have been worse if I was on the other side. That's an amazing, amazing perspective. So there were Sadiqim and Sadkaniyot that whatever method they used, that the Emunah will just remain intact to see God uh, in, these, in these places. And there's many, many stories told of people that uh, um, saw. Um, uh, um, things that uh, cause them to have the emunah shaken. And we shouldn't be tested. We pray every morning, Now I will go one step further. There's a blessing that we make every morning in the morning blessings. The blessing is the only one of the morning blessings that is made in past tense. All the blessings that we make in the morning are in present tense. Baruch Hashem, Avrim. Avrim means, you opened my eyes so I could see. Zokef Kifufim, I'm able to stand erect. Malbish Arumim, you give me clothes to wear. This is all in real time. But there's one blessing that we say in past tense. She'asali kol surki. You have provided me with all my needs. And I asked many years ago, a big rabbi, well, do you believe that God is providing you or provided? I believe he's providing me in, in, in real time. So shouldn't you say, Baruch Hashem she'oseli kol surki? I mean, I think it's, 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 it's only proper to thank God in the present. Why are you thanking God for, for yesterday? We should thank God every day for today. You woke up, you have all your needs. Why is it the only blessing that's made in past tense? And the explanation is the following. Because situations happen in life 
that we don't understand and are very upsetting. Man who has a, a job and one day he's laid off and now he's unemployed. And he comes home to his wife at 2.30 in the afternoon. His wife, what are you doing home? They fired me today. How are we going to live? How are we going to pay the bills? How are we going to survive? I don't know. I don't have a job. Now, this man over here has a stack of bills, has no income, and has no perspective in the future. How can he get up the next morning and say, with a good heart, with Hashem's name, he feels that God is not providing him his needs. God actually is taking away his needs. He cannot make that berachah wholeheartedly. Or God forbid a person is diagnosed with a terrible disease. Surprise. His life is turned upside down. And now he has to take all sorts of medicines and the therapies and stuff, whatever it may be. How can he come to God the next day wholeheartedly and say, He feels that he got, he got gypped. Or you have a girl that had, a, God forbid, a broken engagement. The invitations were sent out, and all of a sudden the engagement broke. Poor lady, poor girl. She's so depressed, she's crying, she went through all this embarrassment. Everybody's talking, what happened? What happened? Could she come to God the next day? Oh, you ruined my name, you ruined my life. And so a lot of things happen in the course of life that are very hard to understand. And to thank God in real time, we're incapable. But let's fast forward. Anyway, the unemployed fellow that I told you about, he used to go to 6 o'clock minyan in the morning because he has to get to work. So he prays in the workers' minyan. Now he can pray with the, with the bankers' minyan at 8 o'clock in the morning. And at 8 o'clock in the morning, he prays late. The guy sees him. What are you doing in this minyan over here? You became wealthy? I didn't become wealthy. I became so poor that it doesn't matter. Because I had no job. He says, what do you mean? I'm looking for somebody to run my warehouse. You're available? I'm available. Great. You have to work from 9 to 5. Great. I used to work from 6 in the morning to 10 o'clock at night. And I'll give you a car because you have to get to the warehouse in New Jersey. Well, it comes with a car and you get insurance and there's no Shabbat in this business. Beautiful. I have to work Saturday nights and Sundays. P.S. He gets the best job of his life, more benefits, more everything. He's the happiest guy. The next morning he wakes up and he says to God, Olam, I have to take care of some old business. That day that I got fired, I thought it was the most unluckiest day of my life. But now that I see the full picture, Sha'asali Kosurki, I have to thank you in past tense that that day actually was a very, very good day for me because it brought me to a better, a better place. Although I didn't see it, it took six months for this to become realized. So I'm going back to old business to settle with. I couldn't thank you in real time, but I can thank you in retrospect. The same thing is with the fellow that got sick. He wasn't religious. He wasn't religious at all. And he asked somebody, could you bring me a rabbi to talk to me? He's, he's all, has questions. Anyway, he started to become close to a rabbi and the rabbi would start to learn with him and so on. Eventually, a year later, he became healthy, thank God, but he became all of a sudden religious. Over the course of his sickness, the rabbi was able to bring him around to religion. And all of a sudden he realizes, you know something, if I wouldn't have gotten sick, forget about uh, my health, I would not have had ulama ba. I would have been uh, banished from eternity. The fact that he got sick actually brought him to an eternal life. Shasali called Surki. He says, God Almighty, when I got that diagnosis, I thought you were taking away something from me. Little did I know you were handing me my ulama ba on a platter. I must thank you for that. So God said, why didn't you thank me then? I didn't understand it then. I needed uh, a little time for it to settle. And the girl that had a broken engagement, she gets married, of course, later on to a better boy, more handsome, more rich, better family. And then she realized that the guy was a deadbeat. Maskeen, look at the guy. I could have got stuck with this uh, you know, creepy guy. And Hashem actually said, love is blind. 
she thought that he was uh, Prince Charming. He was not. He really was a bad guy. And Hashem says, wow, thank God Hashem somehow got me out of it, and therefore something bad happened. So we're only able to understand things over the, over the course of time, and uh, Hashem's ways are hidden from us. And that's what, when the tzaddik suffers, we don't know what Hashem's calculation is. And the problem is, we don't always understand the calculations in this world. Uh, as we said, this chapter, if you remember in the beginning of the chapter, we said, there's different Shabbats. There's the Shabbat of Shabbat, uh, seventh day of the week, and then there's the Olam that's called Shabbat, which is Olam Abba. Uh, this chapter makes sense in Olam Abba. In Olam Abba, a lot of these uh, problems become uh, answered. It's a different perspective. There was a great rabbi um, from, from Russia, um, Rav Zalman. Rav Zalman, he was the, one of the early rabbis from Lubavitch. Uh, Rav Shneya Zalman Miliad, Miliadi. And he was a great, great Gaon. And when, when he, uh, he lived in the time of the Tsar, the Russian Tsars, they were terrible people. And uh, when he passed away, uh, everybody thought that the rabbi would go to Hashem and make prayers and the situation would become alleviated. At least that's what he told them. He said in his passing, I will be an advocate for you and I will pray that I will. And when he passed, nothing changed. And he came to one of the students in a dream and he said, well, when I got upstairs and I saw exactly what Hashem is doing, <laughs> it, it made sense. <laughs> Although it made no sense on earth, but when I looked at it from his perspective up there, all this, and, and the people on earth, how can this make sense? <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> from the vantage that I have over here now, it's, 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 it's hurtful, doesn't, not, that's not easy, but it's, it's for the best. It's, it's nothing, there's nothing to be concerned about. And I once heard from a great rabbi, which I thought was one of the most brilliant uh, statements that I heard. Uh, he said that there was once a child that came... Um, uh, to the rabbi after a, um, a tragedy that happened to him, whatever happened to him. And uh, the child was crying, and the child was all sad, and, and he was depressed. And the rabbi was trying to teach the child and console him and teach him emunah. So the rabbi said, you know, we have to believe gamzul tova and everything is for the best. And, you know, Hashem knows what he's doing. So the seven-year-old child turned to the Rebbe and said, I believe in Gamzu Tova, but that doesn't mean you can't say ouch. What does one thing have to do with the other? It still hurts. I know everything is from Hashem. I know Hashem runs the world. I, well, that, so they were what? So they I should walk around now Purim Day because I have a loss. There's not a contradiction in saying that. And the Rebbe said, what a, what a smart kid that he was able to balance a true emotion of saying ouch and not compromising the fact that he believes in Hashem 100%. And, and the lesson over here is that we only understand uh, a part of a story. We only understand half the story. We don't understand the rest of the story. And our rabbis say this in 101 uh, different ways, uh, that if you would have the perspective of seeing the creation from day one until 57, well, not 57, until 6,000, which is the whole movie, 
then we might have a, a different uh, 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 reaction. Problem is, we came late to this movie. We showed up in the year 5700, whatever. Now that's a lot of, lot of scenes, a lot of chapters, and we should all live forever. But most of us are not going to live for another 200 years to the end of the movie. So you come in for 80 years in a 6,000 year movie, expecting to understand everything. Well, just think about if you walked into a movie two hours late. You have no right to ask any questions on the producer. Oh, this is so silly. There's no plot. But you missed the first two hours. You can't ask any questions. And you left a half hour early. So how do you, how do you have any opinion? These are, these are different methods that give a, a person uh, imunah uh, when he goes through things. And I, I, I'll make one more, one more comment. If, if we're talking about this principle of, uh, of imunah, As a rabbi, part of my job allows me to, to meet people. Uh, I have to meet people all day long when I'm not teaching classes, uh, appointments with the rabbi. And I meet all people from the community, men and women and uh, from all different classes, and uh, they come to talk to the rabbi. And I made one uh, assessment over the course of my life in consulting and, and, and giving consultation to people that they all have something uh, in common. There's a common denominator between all the people that I met. And it's a common denominator that most people would not believe, but it's, it's the fact, and that is they all have problems. <laughs> Everybody has problems. I never met yet anybody that does not have a problem. No, nobody ever came to me and said, no, I just came to look at the rabbi's face uh, and marvel the rabbi and get, you know, just look at you in five minutes and go home. <laughs> There's a problem. Everybody has a problem. It doesn't matter if they were the richest people or sometimes have the biggest problems or the poorest people or the middle people or people that lived over there or people that lived over there. So as I got old, I started to recognize that's part of the, the lack of imunah is people think that they're getting picked on. Why is this happening to me? As if to say, everybody else is living on the yellow brick road. They have such an easy life. And I'm getting a, 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 a lemon of a deal over here. Uh, as, as I start to see, nobody that ever came and sat down uh, was not because they'd have a problem of some sort. And when you start to hear the problem, you say, what, you? What, you? She says, I don't wear it. You know, I don't wear it uh, on the outside, but it definitely exists. And then you start to say to yourself, you know what, everybody with their problems, good luck to you. I have my own issues. and uh, I th- Thank God that I don't have to do what you have over there. Somehow, I'm uh, this is a world of, of bumps and potholes and, 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 and there's no easy street in this world. Uh, that's the mistake people make. Why well, you want to have it easy? Easy isn't all I'm about. Easy is in the next world. This is the, year of, this is the road, so whether it's with their children or with their family or with their marriages or with their panasah, with fertility, everybody has some sort of headache. And I once heard from a big rabbi, uh, there was once a rabbi in, in Israel that was giving berachot, and there was a big line of people standing online to get blessings. And uh, rich people, poor people, doesn't matter. Everybody needs blessings. And the, the poor man comes to the rabbi, and he says, before I tell you what I need, I have a claim against the rabbi. So okay, everybody has claims against the rabbi. What's your claim? He says, I noticed I'm standing online for an hour. When a guy like me comes, a poor man, you give him five minutes of your time. When a rich man comes like that guy, you give him 10 minutes. Even over here, there's favoritism. We're all coming for, for blessings. Why do you show favoritism? 
And the rabbi said, you're right, I cannot deny it. The rich, you'll get five minutes, and the guy behind you is rich, he's going to get ten minutes. It's the way I do it. He said, I don't believe it. You're not even denying it. It's a fact. That's what I do. He says, could you, could you explain me why? He says, yes, if you want to understand why, I can explain to you why. He says, you see everybody online over here? Why are they coming to the Rebbe? Because they have problems. He says, now the poor man is not embarrassed of his problems. So when he comes to the Rebbe right away, he says, I have this problem and I have that problem. So it takes me five minutes to bless him and understand. When the rich man comes and I say, what's the matter? Oh, nothing. Everything's fine. Oh, that's going to be not so easy to pry it out of him. Okay, why did you come here? Everything's good. Uh, Your wife is good? Well, uh, yeah. Uh, It takes me... Nine minutes to get them to admit that their life is not as rosy as they try to portray it on the outside. They're not as forthcoming. <laughs> it's not because I'm showing them favoritism. I have to pry it out of them for them to admit that they're just as needy as the poor men and they have just as many problems as the poor men, although nobody would, would know it. Recently, I was, I was uh, meeting with a couple and, uh, and they... Uh, which was, I thought, strange. But after they were giving me all their problems, uh, very, very out of character. But they said, and Rabbi, they pointed to a different couple that I know. They know I know them. They said, look at them. It's just strange of mentioning somebody else. Look at them. Uh, they have a perfect marriage. And their kids are all, all wonderful. And they have this and that over there. And, and I guess, for whatever reason, they couldn't control themselves. Little did they know that the next people that I was meeting was that couple. <laughs> and they walked out, and I, whatever I told them, and that couple walked in. This couple that they said is the picture perfect. And if I could tell you the Megillat uh, Echa that they read to me that's going on in their life with children that are anorexic and depression and the problems and the disorders. And, blah, 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 blah. and I'm saying to myself, if the other couple only know what I'm hearing, but they didn't see that. They just saw... Now, the Gemara says that once a person knows that it's universal, it's already a consolation. That everybody goes through problems. So, okay, so I'm, I'm not... The problem that people suffer is they think that, hey, everybody else is good, and I'm getting the, the, the raw end of a deal, and then already it's hard for them to tolerate the inequity. But it's, but it's really not. And David Melech is telling us over here, you don't understand not Sadiq Veratlo and Rasha Vetoplo. You don't understand anything. And to come along with the question, what is that? What is that? You're the guy in NASA that's picking up a screw and saying, Mazot. You're the guy at the Seder that sees 73 rituals and you say, Mazot. You're a tam. You're a fool. We don't understand it either. But at least we're smart enough to say, we don't understand any of it. And the, uh, the therapy of this is to be patient. But we don't understand today. Sometimes we understand at a later date. And sometimes uh, we don't understand it uh, uh, at all. Good news is, and I'll conclude with this, those that have emunah and they work on the emunah, because this is emunah, this is all, all about faith in God, that he is just, and he is right, and he's beyond our comprehension. When you start to think like this, you start to see Hashem will reveal himself 
in a much more uh, clear way where you start to understand him. Those that pull away from Hashem, it works as 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 a as a uh, in tandem. God pulls away from the person himself, but those that are interested in having imuna and coming close, then it's like a, a student that wants to get close to the Rebbe. The student gets closer, so the Rebbe opens himself more to show him more of the light. Hashem is the same way. When you come close to him and have imuna, he'll show you. Many years ago. Um, Many years ago, I was, uh, just to show you, uh, that Hashem talks to people. I was a young boy, and I came to study Torah, and I was studying Torah, I was 12, 13 years old, and with a rabbi, it was in deal. Those days, nobody was studying Torah in deal. But my father, my grandfather wanted me to study. So they got me a rabbi from Baltimore to study Torah every day. It was the last thing I wanted to do. All my friends were fooling around, not to go to shul in the morning, deal shul. There was nobody in the shul, only old men and me. Today it's different. Nice 1980. And there was a rabbi with a beard and a hat and a white shirt. And I come in, I'm dressed to go to camp. I don't want to learn over here. And he says, you don't look, you don't look like you want to be here. He says, correct. <laughs> and you want to be here getting paid. I don't want to be here. I want to be, I'll be my friends. Anyway, that was then. Now I, I changed my attitude a little. Anyway, he starts to teach me. And what does he teach me? He says, now we're going to learn Gemara. So, okay, what are we learning today, Rabbi? He said, okay, the first case is that uh, there's a guy and uh, he spit on the floor and then his friend was running and he slipped on the spit and he uh, broke his knee. And now the question is, the guy who spit on the floor has to pay damages. And I tell the guy, you're kidding this is the case you came. I woke up early in the morning for such a nonsensical case. What did you mean a case that's applicable? This guy spit on the floor. Did you ever hear that in your life? Guy spit on the floor to be split on the spit, and now we're picking the bedding. And he said, No, no, young man, this is the Talmud. Do not make fun of uh, uh, these, these cases. If the Torah says it, these cases can happen. I said, Rabbi, if I live to a thousand, this case will never happen. You, you can get struck by lightning 11 times before this case can happen. Over. What, what are we talking about? And he was trying to convince me. And he said, you will see. You will see. Okay, I'm going to see. I'm, I'm, I wasn't that old then. I was 13 years old. But uh, I'm going to see. I didn't see it till now. Anyway, we finished learning. And I went to camp that day. And uh, in camp, they used to have a nurse. In the, in, the, in the room over there. She was in charge of the camp. And when I walk in, I hear the owner of the camp screaming that to a boy in the camp, if you ever spit on this floor again, you'll be thrown out of the camp. You'll never come back again. And I walk into the office. There's an old lady, nurse friend, her name was. She's sitting over there. And there's a kid with a broken knee. And I said, what happened, nurse? He said, oh, the Uven spit on the floor. And then he, he, he slipped on it and broke his knee. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I don't believe it. What's the matter? It's like you saw a ghost. I said, it's a ghost. Worse than a ghost. It's scarier than a ghost. I told the owner of the kid, can I use the phone? I called Deal Shul, 531-3200. I said, Helen was the secretary. She answered the phone. I said, I need to speak to this Rabbi Melkovsky. He's the guy in the room over there. He's the only guy, the only black hat in the shul at that time. So he gets on the phone. I said, Rabbi, my voice was shaking. I was a kid. My voice was shaking. What happened? You're not going to believe it. I'm looking at a kid that just <laughs> slipped on the spit and he broke his knee. I can't believe it. He says, you learned the lesson. 
that's Hashem talking to you. You spoke about the Gemara and you questioned it. He says, and I'll never forget what he told me. He says, you're lucky. Some people don't get an answer to their question till many years later. But for some reason, Hashem wanted to fix you right away. I said, poor guy, he broke his knee because of me. But that's, that's the, I won't get to tell him that part of the story. But I'm sure God was selling business with him also. But my point is that uh, as much as you don't see God, you see him. As much as the stories that we told today, we say, oh, where is he? I couldn't leave you with stories where you don't see him. Because more times you see him than you don't. And you have to use those stories like that as, as energy in the times where you don't see him to strengthen you at the time. And the lesson is, The ways of God are deep and don't expect to understand them, at least in real time. Okay, that's the chapter as best as we can say it. We'll move on.